0: This podcast is sponsored by Bailey Gifford. Their podcast series, Short Briefings on Long-Term Thinking, brings you in-depth knowledge and challenging points of view from Bailey Gifford's investment managers. Search online for Bailey Gifford Short Briefings. Welcome to this CityWire podcast. My name is Will Robbins, editor of CityWire's publication for Financial Advisors, New Model Advisor. Joining me today is Fund Manager Ben Rogoff, a Technology Specialist at Polar Capital, who manages uh, two funds, a Global Technology Fund and uh, an Automation and Artificial Intelligence Fund. Hello, Ben. Hi. Let's get started. Technology has been one of the winners, if we can call it that, of of lockdown. It's attracted uh, investment and the businesses uh, have obviously uh, enjoyed higher demand. Uh, We'll get back into that a bit more later. But uh, just to start with, your fund in particular uh, seems to have, have had remarkable growth. Um, we're just checking the numbers uh, today. Am I right? It's grown from about 2.9 billion in March to 4.6 billion today. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, how much? You know, well, sort of, you know, obviously that's that's a, bit, a lot of growth. How much of that, that has been new money from existing customers, and uh, how much is that growth? Of, uh, you know, growth beside
1: it well i mean it's a combination of the two as you as you as you, as you pointed out and i should just for our listeners uh, straight watchers sort of clarify that yeah we, we actually um so that the, the fund you're talking about the global tech fund is managed yeah. by nick evans and myself i'm a co-manager we certainly enjoyed strong flows um and obviously very strong performance from the, the from the sector uh, and obviously the market but more the sector really from the lows uh, you know and and so yeah it's um tech, technology has sort of captured the zeitgeist very much of of, of the lockdown has been uh, obviously a beneficiary in the form of higher stock prices and, and in some cases, um, you know, improved fundamentals. And I think um, it's really continued. I mean, let's be clear, this isn't new news. I think investors are attracted to technology because of, yes, the unique characteristics that, that the sector offers right now. But really, it's the sort of continuation of a trend. And if you think about it, the tech sector has captured nearly all, um, if not all, um, of all of the earnings growth really since the financial crisis. And I know that's a very big statement to make. There are other sectors out there that have also performed well. But if you just ignore that for a moment um, and imagine what the world looked like ex the tech sector from the financial crisis onwards, there's been very little earnings progress. And that, I think, really is the underlying people's you know um, excitement with the tech sector.
0: And just to uh, just ask you one specific question about the fund uh, while we talking about the growth. Uh, am I right in saying you you are soft closing uh, the global tech fund as a result of the uh, of the growth and, and the inflows that you've seen?
1: So Polar has always been driven by the idea that performance ultimately is is what we what we're paid to deliver, um, and that there is inevitably a trade-off between the amount of money you manage and your ability to deliver that outperformance. Um, and I think the the soft close number is um, has been a moving target because of the you know it very much reflects um, where the market is on any given Sunday and also the liquidity profile. Um, of our portfolios. We have, as I'm sure you know, gravitated towards large and mid-cap companies um, for, for quite a time now. Um, but I think it's certainly something that we're looking at um, now that we're approaching this size. Um, I think the key is remember that soft close doesn't equal close. Um, and that you know at some point we felt that it was the right thing, it will be the right thing to do um, to to close the, the fund to new investors. But obviously existing investors um, will still have c- capacity. And that's the critical part about a soft close, is making sure that you don't have to do anything more drastic um, and prevent you know, your existing customers from being able to access the product. You know, I think that our portfolios are remarkably liquid. I haven't looked at the very latest data, um, but remember, we think about liquidity not just in terms of any individual product, but the family of products. Okay. And so we have the investment trust um, that I'm the lead manager of, we have the global fund that Nick is the lead manager of, and we also have the AI fund um, which Shusong is ostensibly the lead manager of. We all sit on each other's funds. We all you know, are co- co-managers of each other's products. But when we think about liquidity, we don't just think about the liquidity of Fund A. We think about the, the, the entirety of our strategy. And the last time I looked, I think it's something remarkable. Like we can liquidate 95% of this portfolio, these portfolios um, in a week. So the, the key is what, why, why soft close um, you know, at some point? And the answer is, because, because we still want flexibility to be able to rotate the portfolio. Let's say we do have a sell-off. Let's say there's, I don't know, an opportunity arises to reallocate 5% of your portfolio to small caps. The, there, is a, there will be a size issue then, a size challenge then. Right now, really, um, the decision to, to, to soft close um, will, be, will be made, I think, well ahead of schedule. Like We're being conservative um, because I think that gives you that future wiggle room.
0: Okay. All right, excellent. So, uh, well, we'll turn on to back into the bigger picture, I suppose. So, well, talk about your fund. Uh, obviously, I said tech is is one of the, the you know been been a big winner. I mean, you might want to talk about that because I'm sure it's not true across the board. But what has performed? Perhaps to start with your fund. Uh, mm. I said we're going big, but actually, we're going back into your fund. <laughs> What's performed? You know, what has performed best for you? I guess. You know, th- thinking about this lockdown period, I know it's, you know, for, since March, what what, have, what has, you know, been doing really well?
1: It's a wonderful adage that, you know, by the time you've worked out what, what the market's doing, it, you know, does something else. Um, and so, you know, in, in the early part of the crisis, um, the market fled or investors fled from companies that were perceived to be obviously cyclical um, and companies with, um, I suppose slightly shaky or less strong balance sheets, and, and you can understand that entirely. You know, entirely. It's all about capital preservation at that point. Um, and so we in the portfolio, made, you know, made some big changes in our portfolio in that time frame. We um, can come back to that. Um, and then, the, and then of course the market then um, look for beneficiaries. Those companies are obviously you know sit in a number of different buckets. Um, there are the e-commerce companies that have had uh, a remarkable acceleration. Um, you know, look at things like online grocery and an area, a, a vertical that was struggling really for relevance, closed shopping, um, something that um, people have also been slightly reticent to do, I think, uh, outside of certain demographics. So there's been the internet stocks that have done very well. Uh, the net, Netflix is probably, you know, a perfect, um, a perfect example of a company that, um, you know, could, couldn't have had a better crisis, really. Um, and, and so the internet stocks have done well. I think there's been a, a, another broad category of companies that we've really enjoyed um, and, and we, in a sense we're lucky, you know, these are names that we're drawn to anyway and we, we haven't really talked about how we invest, but, um, but what's, what's happened of course in this period is the need to support work from home has put massive strain on traditional architectures. So this idea that most of your compute lives within your company uh, on premise and the cloud is used for certain applications is absolutely fine when most of your compute is on premise. Um, I mean, it isn't fine on a 10 year view. It was, it's, it's obsolete, but there has been a very significant acceleration to the cloud um, and, uh, and c- applications that sit on top of the cloud. And so we would talk about software as a service companies, but not just that, you know, security companies, you know, if I'm not inside the, company's firewall um, and i 'm at home and we 're doing this podcast today from my home then it 's this endpoint that needs to be protected um, uh, as well as the stuff that sits within polar 's um, corporate network and so there 's been a very profound shift um, towards companies that are perceived as next generation software winners and then on top of that of course you 've just got um, you know massive monetary and fiscal stimulus um, pouring into you know, into financial markets. And that's had a, you know, obviously a very large knock on impact onto valuations generally. So you've seen, I would say technology leadership has become narrower. Uh, I mean, the sector has, you know, has done exceptionally well. We're delighted with that. Um, but it isn't, and it never has been, um, uh, you know, a rising tide lifts all, all, all boats. In tech, there are winners and losers. Um, and I think this current environment has highlighted the gulf between winners and losers rather than ameliorate it.
0: One of the, we're going to pick, pick through a few of those things there. Um, work from home, uh, you know, look, I know we're nowhere near the end of the coronavirus crisis. So you could say, well, anything that's working well in the, you know, for work from home uh, world, it is something worth uh, look, looking at for, for a while longer. But do you think, you know, really long term, you know, and, and assuming, you know, that, that coronavirus does recede into the background at some point, do you think actually a permanent change shift has occurred uh, in terms of what people will expect to do, what, companies will, what will be expected of companies in terms of working from home, how much time people will spend at home?
1: Yeah, I, I really do think that. They, they, I know it's sort of hackneyed and so on to call, talk about a new normal, but I think there will be a new normal. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I don't believe that we're all going to be working from home five days a week. I just don't think, you know, I, uh, Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, talked about work from home. And said, you know, in the end, it's going to have to be a combination of being in an office and being at home. And the reason for that is that, in the end, not having physical contact um, with your team, for example, or your, you know, your body politic, your your corporate, ends up burning. His quote was, "Burn social capital." Like, it's fine if you've worked with people before. It's fine if you know these, you know, the, your your teammates. Um, you know, look at my own team. We're we're nine uh, investors in our team. Uh, dedicated tech investors and we know each other really well and so this is okay but you know adding new people to the team will be problematic right now I suspect um, and at some point we are going to have to you know get together and you know bump you know bang heads against each other and you know do, do the sort of stuff we do when we brainstorm and and, and think about you know things in broad strokes like you know, we do so so I with, I'm with Satya Nadella I think we're going to go to a world where We've now demonstrated beyond any reasonable doubt, certainly we have at Polar, that we can work from home. There shouldn't be any negative connotation associated with that going forward. If I can avoid, you know, mass transit systems, um, if I can save two hours a day, um, you know, that would be great. So I suspect we will move to a different, uh, a new normal. And I think, you know, it's a little bit like when companies rolled out Blackberries. you know, the employees were delighted when they first got their Blackberries. It meant that they were important and they had this fantastic device in you know, an early smartphone and um actually what it really was was a incredible productivity tool for the company they got more time from their employee um, than they would have done otherwise and so um you end up you end up you know thinking that you're being rewarded but actually um you know you're being you your you the, the pound of flesh is um more, more flesh is being taken let's say and yeah. so i i'm yeah I, i'm excited about it i think that um you know, you sometimes need these hiatus, hiatuses to, you know, have a profound change in, in approach. Um, it's almost impossible to change things in motion. Um, uh, but I think that when we come through this, companies, where, where possible, and mostly it's going to be, you know, frankly, white collar work, isn't it, that um, is going to be impacted most. Um, but I think that we, we, we will enjoy a slightly maybe healthier mix of sort of work um, and play lifestyles. What
0: do you think? You think I could sort of apply in apply other contexts as well, um, you may or may not be something you've looked at, but I just, just thought it might be worth asking, you know, for example, things we've see, the problems we've seen with schools and education in mm-hmm. having, you know, it, it, is similar and I wondered if, you know, obviously there are problems having your kids at home and things like that, but that, that sort of level of, um, you know, not being a binary thing that you're either out the house or, or in the house to do a certain task could be applied in other contexts, not just the world of work necessarily.
1: Um, I- Yes, I agree. Um, I mean, I have two kids that are being remote school. till my youngest, thankfully, has gone back because uh, he's Year Six. Well, okay. So, so I think the, the answer is it, there must be lots of other examples of where we can um, where we can replace physical, you know, contact with a virtual alternative. Um, you know, I think that you know you see in things like uh, in things like Fortnite, you know, the computer game where yeah. you know millions of people are watching. Concerts within the computer game. Um, I mean, I think that virtual reality, which has really long been a technology looking for an, an application, um, you know, th- this could be the moment for VR. You see that Apple is making moves, buying businesses, um, is rumored to be looking at launching its own augmented reality glasses at some point in the future. Um, you know, you do wonder if um, certain activities um, can be done, or, or much larger audiences, let's put it this way, can be. Um, gathered together in a virtual world. You know, Glastonbury can take hundreds of thousands, but it can't take millions. Um, And and so that's interesting. Will it replace, you know, so so the idea of that, what's so interesting about that is, is that where the content is unique um, and where there is a finite real-world capacity, audience-wise, then virtual alternatives, you know, Zoom, for example, has a wonderful role to play. Um, if you have the best teachers in the world, you know, if Aristotle would happen to just be resurrected right now, or Plato, um, wouldn't it be amazing if 10 million people could learn from that, that teacher? It would be. Um, would it replace day-to-day schooling? Unlikely. You know, in the end, um, you know, learning is as much to do with, an unknown teacher, but my mother and my brother are, um, is much, as much to do with being, you know, in a, in, a, in a kind of communal space with friends and peers and you know bouncing ideas off one another as you know and and learning and, and growing and so i don't i don't personally think you you necessarily can apply it to that but when you look at things like you know graduate degrees um you you might i mean we used to invest in a company called 2 You that provides um you know virtual i mean they're very real um but they're done in a virtual domain rather than moving to the university to do you know to do a graduate degree maybe in time um, that will also extend into undergraduate degrees um I think it would be incredible in terms of um, reducing the cost uh, associated with all of the, you know, the living and, and all of the ancillary costs of university. So could it be, you know, could it be a way to spread, you know, university education more more evenly? Perhaps. So I think we're scratching the surface. I think there's a very real possibility that video as an interface becomes a, a real thing. Um, you know, video. The first ever company I saw. This is a, honestly, this is a true story. The first ever company I visited in the 90s. Uh, Was a company called Picturetel, um, which ended up, uh, which was a video conferencing company, uh, much too early, um, which was acquired by um, Polycom, which was eventually acquired by someone else and someone else, and then of course a company comes from nowhere like Zoom, and absolutely you know captures the moment with an incredible product um, that works, Mm. and and really for the first twenty five years of video conferencing, my entire career really, um, it just hasn't worked. Uh, if you can produce a product that does work, that is one-to-many or many-to-many, um, I just, you know, last week, a uh, good friend of ours, their son um, had his bar mitzvah on Zoom um, because synagogues yeah. are closed and we were in the garden and there were, must have been 50 families all tuned in, watched this, this, this guy do a brilliant job in his back garden with a little band. And, you know, would you have traded a real-world experience for that? Maybe not, but, but it was amazing and unique. And and so there will be so many applications for video. And I think the most the most important one, sorry to, to kind of hog the, the mic, but I think business travel is the one area where I, I'm struggling a little to see how we're going to bounce back to the old template. You know, I think that my colleague and I, Nick Evans, Nick does seven trips a year to the States. You know, he's got a big, you know, large got four kids, I've got two kids. Would it be great if we didn't have to go to the States? seven times, and instead we went two or three times. And we augmented that with 10, let's say, conferences that we can do via Zoom. I think that's what we're looking at here. I think we're looking at permanently changed um, uh, workflows. I don't think school's gonna go to a kind of mixed, you know, physical virtual, but I think lots of other industries might.
0: Well, I mean, in your, in your fund, are you, I mean, what, is, what are you investing in that, that gives you exposure to this in the fund?
1: Well, it's difficult. I mean, there aren't very many video plays that you can. There, there never were. I mean, Zoom is the pure play. Um, we we were in the stock. <laughs> yeah, here we are on Zoom. Um, yeah. We were we 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 were in the stock for the IPO, um, and it had a, a very big pop. And we exited. We didn't have an enormous position, truthfully. Um, and then tr- we felt that really the the stock. I mean, you know, the thing about growth investing is that frequently the best assets are priced at levels that keep you out of the stocks and in time of course you know you wish you hadn't been deterred and my favorite example of course is Google That when it came public traded on a forward multiple of something like I don't know 50 times let's say um and of course you know I forget the numbers but let's say 10 years on you know the, the numbers the, the company would, would have been trading on a PE of one when it came public you know so it's never easy to to really get the right price for the best assets. They're rarely rarely cheap. And Zoom unfortunately fit that bill. Um, However, the last quarter that the company put up was so remarkable. It was probably the most remarkable quarter I've seen in 25 years um, in this business. And it sort of forced our hand and we bought some. So we have roughly a percent of the portfolio um, in Zoom today. However, we we have also um, had lots of exposure to companies that do um, things like um, call centres that have been you know, again, not quite video function, but nonetheless, new ways to communicate. We have had exposure to Five9. We've recently exited. We had exposure to Ring Central for a very long time, a company that does um, virtual PBX and um, effectively telephony, you know, cloud telephony. Um, yeah. That's been an outstanding investment for us. So we have had lots of other ways of playing the theme, but in the end, Zoom, Zoom feels more like Google um, than, than either of those other two assets.
0: Very interesting. I think I saw you added, because i look, try looking through your stocks, have have uh, added Nintendo yeah. recently. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was interested to see, I couldn't recognize every single name there, but obviously Nintendo is very recognizable. Are you, are you more interested in the video game market?
1: We've owned it for a, a very long time. Um, and in the end, it's just, it has been, you know, the area where the leisure type, the medium that has been growing at the expense of others, you know, cinema or TV, film, video games is obviously an enormous industry and we've liked that industry for a very long time. Um, I would say that our interest in it has waxed and waned. Um, you know, last year uh, we, we had to contend with, um, or I should say about 18 months ago, we had to contend with the Fortnite phenomena. Um, and, and it was a phenomena and still is a phenomena, um, certainly based on the Rogoff household. Um, so, so you know, But the phenomena specifically being free to play on the console. Um, we've had free-to-play models in other you know, other, other arenas like uh, PC and mobile. Anyway, I'll, I'll get to the punch side. So we liked it structurally. We took our foot off the gas when we had um, when, in Fortnite when we were trying to work out how other companies, you know, we see this a lot by the way in tech disruption where yeah. an incumbent company sells stuff and a new person comes along and tries to give it away to build a business. Um, and in fact, um, we see that phenomenon with Zoom. I mean, Zoom, you know, the, the, the phenomenon that, you know, I think 100 million people, or whatever the number is, uh, have been using a service, many of which are using it for free. So the phenomena of free in a digital world is very disruptive. Um, and so we, we stayed away. We've revisited the space naturally um, in this lockdown. And so we don't just own Nintendo, but we, we, we like Nintendo. It's a very unique asset. Uh, but we also like Take-Two, um, Activision. They're the three names that I would focus on today. So still like them, and Netflix actually sits in there too just more time um, and and, and acceleration of audience.
0: Yeah, are you a gamer, Ben, or is it it your uh, your children's
1: age? My children would say that I'm not, but I think I am. Um, (laughs) I'm pretty hopeless these days. I'm the perfect age, really, in the sense that I I was born in 72, so first wave of 8-bit computing was exactly in my sweet spot, you know, 13, my first computer. Uh, I collect old computers. Yes, I am a gamer, um, and I have to... uh, but, you know, the, the you know, this adage that when, you when, when you're young, power is um, in, the, in the act of doing things. And as you get older, power is in the act of not doing things. Um, and I have to be, you know, I try to make sure that I don't play too much.
0: This podcast is in association with Bailey Gifford. Find out more about their ranger funds and investment trusts at www.baileygifford.com. One of the things I saw you invest is Just Eat, which is yeah. interesting. Um, you know, I'm sure you know, you're going to explain it. I think anyone could guess, but it's interesting to see it in a tech fund. Perhaps I'm interested to uh, hear hear you talk through that business and its potential. Yeah. Uh, a bit. Well, to,
1: to be honest, full disclosure, we've actually exited the stock. So, oh, okay. oh, yeah, well. we we were a little bit um, surprised by the move for Grubhub, um, having. Yeah. Obviously, just done a deal with Just Eat. We were slightly caught out. We were caught by well, surprise by that. The, the good news was that we also own Grubhub. So okay. the stock was obviously weak on the back of the, the deal. Investors didn't initially like it, and it does obviously introduce um, a different level of execution risk. The U.S. market. Um, so, so just let's back up. Um, you know, we were attracted to the space. We've been, we've been following it for a very long time. But again, as a beneficiary of lockdown, you know, what a great uh, opportunity to. Ad audience and and you know all of the platforms have been doing that restaurants are closed and then also we felt that they would be likely to be good um, ways of playing a kind of partial sort of uh, opening up where restaurants are beginning to open but people don't want to sit inside social distancing makes restaurants very difficult we understand the risk associated with you know restaurant closures but um, but these these food delivery platforms will you know drive volumes and keep businesses alive And that's interesting. So, yeah, so we own Grubhub, we own Just Eat. um, And in China, actually, we have a small position in a company called Meituan, which does something similar there. So we like this space. uh, The Just Eat Grubhub thing slightly caught us. uh, But nonetheless, we bought more Grubhub, actually. And actually, interestingly, you asked the question, maybe you've seen the news, but, you know, the rumor today that uh, Uber is looking uh, to acquire Postmates in the US, which I think would be very good news for the Just Eat Grubhub combination because the US market remains, you know, fiercely competitive. And so uh, any consolidation would be, I would have thought, you know, beyond the Just Eat Grubhub would be well received.
0: Food delivery, you've got, uh, you're investing in Ocado. I mean, obviously, obviously I've had many, many uh, vans pull up outside my house during this period. Um, I mean, long term, you know, is that again, is that sort of another long term shift? Uh, and is there a kind of, you know, sort of sustainable way, w- way to do that?
1: Oh, well, look, uh, in terms of food delivery, yeah, I'm, I'm outside of the sort of the, the, the takeaway uh, delivery platforms. Yes, I mean, you know, so if you look at e-commerce generally, uh, when you actually look at the average, let, let's say 15% of retail sales is online. It depends, obviously, from country to country. But when you look at within that, there are certain verticals that are highly penetrated and there are some that are, you know, just scratching the surface. And food delivery is scratching the surface. And I think the number is before the crisis um, was about 2% of the market, you know, is done online. Um, you know, I think old habits die hard. And I think that, um, you know, actually um, this, this crisis has been, an, I think it's likely to prove an incredible accelerant um, for, for food delivery platforms. So I'm, I'm you know, I, we, we've owned a into the crisis. We owned it well before the crisis, uh, not in a very large, um, not in a very large way, but in a way that at least, um, you know, the way that we run, we run money and certainly in the investment trust that I run is sort of the money is quite diversified in the USIP product that we, that we were referencing. Actually, it was a reasonably sized position. We just bought more into the crisis because we think as we come out of this, um, you know, supermarkets will need to be able to continue to deliver, no pun intended, um, an online experience. And the Acado solution is phenomenal. So, you know, it sits at the intersection of, you know, changing demographics, changing habits, and, you know, robotic technology. Um, and it's, you know, there aren't many companies in the UK with a, with, that sounds terrible, but as a global tech investor, where you can say they're genuinely world class. And I can't know who is one of those.
0: I forget as well, you know, it's easy to forget, of course, a, a, a person delivers that, that to you. Now, of course... That, that could change, but also the warehouse, there's a lot of uh, AI and, and perhaps robotics involved there as well.
1: There's a, ton of, there's a ton in the warehouse, no question. And the way that those um, warehouses are, are set up are quite something. Um, and the amount of AI going into them, you know, which, which products should you pack first in order to make sure that when the products are packed. I mean, the, the economics of, you know, it's very hard to compete, I think, against the Nakado solution. In the end, you can have humans running around doing this stuff you know, when there's a crisis on, but I think once the crisis is off, you know, the Ricardo solution is, is is pretty unique, so really the company I think is, you know, as I said before, in a really good spot. Um, they've raised capital. They, um, you know, would like to think that their pipeline for new new and existing customers is strong. You know, but again, just to put it into context, you know, this is a one to one and a half percent type position in, in you know in its largest shape in, in the investment trust. It's it's sixty basis points. So, and um, that's the beauty of running a of a diversified portfolio. You know, we're not trying to rifle shoot. We really are. Putting together a you know an assemblage of interesting companies that not all of them will deliver again you know what you expect but but as long as enough do you can deliver great returns over time.
0: Move on to, to those those bigger companies those bigger positions you know you're you're an investor in um, in Alphabet the the the, uh, the parent yep. of, of Google obviously <laughs> um, just to talk about that you know it's so interesting google you know it's always maybe it comes to the territory of being so big certainly with these these technology companies one of the sort of criticisms leveled against it is it sort of uh, that it's monopolistic in, in it's the way it's you know in its control of data it's just it's interesting you know we all use it and we all love it but funnily enough a company in my, in, our, in my in the financial advisor space that we were writing about recently angrily protested when someone described it as the Google of our sector. Google is at, a, at a, perhaps a turning point. I'm interested to hear from you what, how you would describe what's happening with that company and where it's going to go and thinking particularly about possible movement regulators on it uh, and of course, it, you know, its responsibilities towards data uh, and what you, you thought about that.
1: Yeah, no, it's a it's a good question, and it's obviously a pertinent one. So it's funny, I'm, I've uh, just finished writing, well, I wrote a while ago, but it will go to publish, publish uh, to be published soon, our annual report. And in there, we obviously talk to this, the question of regulatory risk on a number of our larger platform companies. And Google is, as you say, one of the largest um, and most successful platforms out there. And I think seven applications with more than a billion um you know daily users is quite something or certainly monthly users so nat- naturally in the spotlight that's interesting because the current crisis i had sort of somewhat hoped that the regulatory environment would um maybe lessen up a bit given you know google has been for example laying laying on google classroom um, for remote learning uh, absolutely free and their cloud and their everything have helped the you know earth continue to spin um, at a very challenging time. I think what's interesting, I, I think that's, that, that, that hope has been, is, is slowly being sort of worn down, I suppose, by just news flow. Uh, Facebook also are very much in the spotlight uh, and their platform also being called into question. And I think, as you say, um, with great power, as they said in Spider-Man, comes great responsibility. And I think that these companies are doing their very best, actually. I mean, again, I don't know that for a fact, but just the impression we get from meeting the companies and just looking at their actions to try to, I suppose, uh, exert control, if that's the right way to think about it, of the content on their platforms and to behave in a way um, that will keep people happy. I think I I would step back. Um, There's a couple of things. Firstly, um, I'm not a believer that these are businesses that have done very much wrong and I'm not a believer that they need to be broken up. Um, I think that what they are, are natural monopolies. And they've become natural monopolies because in the end, if I have 90% market share of search, then it's very hard for anyone to compete with that. In the same way that if I'm Facebook and I have you know, millions of companies on my website and billions of people using this, the platform across my family of products every day and everything. Um, and so these are not robber barons. These are not, these are not modern day equivalent of the kind of gilded age uh, of monopolists that, that did nothing, Rockefellers that dominated pipelines and, and did, you know, dastardly things, you know, discuss. And these are companies that provide incredible utility to billions of people for nothing, for nothing uh, in most cases. Now, of course, they monetize those platforms primarily via advertising. But I, I look at YouTube and, you know, it was a wonderful stat that I, I don't have to hand. But I think YouTube, obviously owned by Google, is one of those phenomena where people used to not know how to change the tire of a bike. Or, or, or some rude, you know, an Ikea piece of furniture that you could look at for a week and it still wouldn't make itself. And now you can go online. I think I read a statistic that says something like 50% of uh, YouTube users use, use it every whatever month to learn a new skill. I mean, these are phenomenal platforms that have delivered utility to the human race in ways that probably few others ever have. So I come at this with a glass half full. I really do. I think the challenge, however, so both of those platforms is, is growing in that it's very hard to keep that many people happy. Uh, people talk about the balkanization of the internet, and I think that may be what we're beginning to see in that it's very, very hard. You have people on the left hand, you know, left of the political spectrum, you know, deeply upset about content on the other side of the political spectrum, and vice versa. You see at Twitter, you know, Republicans coming off the platform um, and going to a new platform or something called Parlor, frankly, not heard of because we tend to focus, you know, on. On, on public, public companies, not, not privates. But nonetheless, um, the point is is that I think regulatory risk exists. I don't know if breaking up Google, for example, will solve any of the challenges that people perceive with that platform. Um, and so we, we're kind of mindful of the risk. We have underweight positions actually, um, large but underweight positions in Google and in Facebook across our portfolios. We, they're phenomenal businesses. On a price to growth basis, you struggle to find anything more attractive, I would say, in the market. And in, in part, that reflects that regulatory unknown. And it also reflects the, the challenge with being very large and having to continue to grow whilst very large. Facebook is very interesting, though. You know, On one hand, you can easily construct uh, a bear case that we've sort of touched on just now. But on the other side, you could say that the concept of social commerce and getting closer and closer to a transaction rather than just selling a lead um, which is what, you know, advertising businesses ultimately do do um, could be phenomenal for the business and it trades on a less than a market multiple. So we've owned Facebook and Google since IPO. I think that we, we we feel that both of those companies deserve the benefit of the doubt. But we are also taking a slight watch and see approach, which is why we have, you know, slight underweights in both.
0: Yeah. And Facebook, you know, just today, it was on in the news as an interview on the, on the Today programme, in fact. Uh, with Facebook in, in that uh, I think they've become uh, sort of pa- Patagonia, the company Patagonia, the, the latest to uh, pull advertising uh, from Facebook. I think it's part of this Stop Hate for Profit campaign, uh, all, all about, I think, sort of, you know, certain things that have happened recently with the Black Lives Matter movement and, yeah. and posts not being posts uh, tra- trending uh, that, that people found, uh, 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 you know, extremely negative. You know, that's, that's got a Facebook has a challenges there. There was a walkout by a virtual walkout by its own staff uh, over a, an inflammatory post by, by Donald Trump. A couple, I mean, we'll want to talk about that and, and, and the power of, of staff in technology in, in a second. Yeah, sure. Just to pass, pass the, first, that reaction to just the specific uh, problems that Facebook has in terms of its av- own advertisers getting, uh, you know, taking more of an active stance and trying to put pressure on it that way.
1: Yeah. Um... I mean, look, the shares have been well, weak. So the news obviously steamrolled a bit uh, slow, excuse me, last week. Um, and obviously, I think it was Unilever on the Friday and a couple of yeah. others, Horizon, I think, on Friday, that got the stock down. And, um, and so the challenge is much more about how can you keep a very diverse, large audience happy? Can you, can you keep them happy just by adhering to the law? So that, that to me, is the, the challenge. For, for what it's worth, we, we have taken a little bit of money out of Facebook. Um, late last week we haven't adjusted our Google position because um, this I think feels specifically to do with social media I know other platforms are being caught up in it but you know it was really Twitter and Facebook that have been hit hardest and and I think in the end you know those Silicon Valley a number of the Silicon Valley firms certainly in the California firms um, and some firm firms have been on a collision course haven't they with Donald Trump for some time and as the election nears I think that that's obviously taken on a different momentum
0: and finally, we sort of touched on AI a little bit. Um, I don't know if you you drive, Ben, but when when are we? When is my drive? My car gonna drive uh, itself? <laughs> Would you get in it? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and, and sort of, you know, worth us, you know, what what what, what could be round the corner in, in that sort of world?
1: Oh, there's that, look, I mean, the beauty of tech investing is that there's always a you know a, a panoply of emerging technologies that we can get excited about. What our um... Our investment approach, and it's, 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 a, it's a well-grounded one, you know, I've been doing this a very long time, Nick Evans as well, um, and, you know, the, what, the, there are a few things you come away with. The, the timeline to um, emerging technologies is almost always longer than you think. It's one of those sobering observations that keeps us out of very early stage businesses that require capital. Um, almost nothing that we own requires any capital, and, you know, nearly everything we own is fully funded. So... That's because our experience says that, you know, people got excited about the internet in the late 90s. And of course, it took another 10-15 years for it to really become sort of commercially uh, interesting. And the same must be true for things like virtual reality, augmented reality. AI is slightly different in that AI is happening now. Um, AI, um, or machine learning, probably more accurately, is happening today. And it's being used to help companies automate, but also make better decisions or augment human decisions. So What you're talking about is an autonomous vehicle, a piece of technology that doesn't require human input, not one that sits above or alongside to improve human decision-making, but to actually completely replace. I think those type of technologies are very rare. Um, And the reason for that um, is partly technological. Ie, It's very hard to make something that that, that is 99.99999% safe which is probably what an autonomous vehicle will need to be before anyone signs off on it. So in the end, the timeline, I think, for an autonomous car is actually extending. Um, You know, I think a few years ago, we had hoped that five to ten years was the timeline. And I think that we're still looking at five to ten years as the timeline. I have seen umpteen technologies be five to ten years away at every point in my career. and, And some of them have never come to fruition. So I think the good news is lots of very clever companies are working on it. But right now, really, you're still talking about features in cars, semi-autonomous vehicles that augment and should prevent things like human error. But driving the car on your own with no human interaction has to be 99.999. At some point, by the way, they will exist. And at which point humans will be legislated off the road. Uh, But I think that point is somewhere
0: away. Well, certainly, when I'm driving in Croydon or down the M40, I, I, I wish for the day we had driverless cars. When I'm driving in Europe or, or the bites you know, or somewhere, I'm very glad that uh, I, I get the thrill of the drive and I'm very glad that I'm still in control. But look, I'll, 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 on that note, I think we'll leave it there. Um, ben, thank you very much for your time.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: This podcast is sponsored by Bailey Gifford. Their podcast series, Short Briefings on Long-Term Thinking, brings you in-depth knowledge and challenging points of view from Bailey Gifford's investment managers. Search online for Bailey Gifford Short Briefings.